0: Hey, this is Dan Denver, host of The Dig. Before we get started, I want to ask you for money. The money we need to keep this going as our part-time jobs and to pay for our overhead. Over the last week, we've gotten more than 20 new supporters on Patreon. If we keep up that rate, we could have around 1,000 a year from now. And that would be amazing. So, if you've already donated, thank you. If you haven't, we have some exciting new rewards to offer. For at least $5 a month become a fellow traveler and post questions to our guests. For at least $10, you become a party member, which means you can post questions and receive a copy of Jacobin's book, The ABCs of Socialism, mailed to your door. To donate, go to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com. Thanks. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. One of the biggest stories on the radical left today is the sudden and explosive growth of democratic socialists of America. DSA was founded in 1983, but has deep roots in a homegrown socialist tradition, dating back to Eugene Debs and the Socialist Party of America. Last June, ahead of the Democratic National Convention, DSA counted 6,500 members. Today, in the wake of a historic and inspiring presidential bid from a self-proclaimed Democratic Socialist and Trump's utterly terrifying seizure of the White House, membership has grown to more than 19,000, and counting. People are considering socialism, long a dirty word in American politics, in far larger numbers than they have in decades, especially young people who face bleak job prospects, heavy student debt, mass incarceration, and an ecological crisis that threatens the very future of the human species. Obviously, there is nothing to celebrate about Trump's victory and the oligarchic, xenophobic, and bellicose reaction that it has set into motion. But that victory was also a major defeat for liberalism, exposing not only its inability to counter the right, but also its complicity in building the carceral state, waging global war, orchestrating mass deportations, and engineering a fake democracy where the 1% rules in the name of the people. Today, my guests are DSA National Political Committee member Sean Monahan and National Director Maria Svart. I have a lot of questions about DSA, of which, full disclosure, I am a member, and so do many others. I hope this interview can help people inside the organization and out think through some tough questions about how the fight for socialism should be waged in the coming months and years. Maria Svard and Sean Monahan, welcome to The Dig.
1: Thanks for having us. Glad to be here.
0: Maria, DSA's membership is exploding. Um, can you lay out what kind of growth the organization has seen and why you think it happened? Obviously, Bernie Sanders' campaign and Donald Trump winning the presidency are correct answers to the question, but there must be something deeper going on as well.
1: (laughs) Right. So, uh, yes, our membership grew by approximately 1,500 people uh, when we wholeheartedly endorsed Bernie Sanders and ran an independent expenditure campaign. Uh, But it it was after the election, or literally overnight on election night, that things truly exploded and there were massive surges, uh, right after election day and right after the inauguration. And there's still a really high rate of new members joining, uh, over 11,500 people have joined since Trump won. And I think it has obviously, to, I think the the main factor is fear of Donald Trump and, uh, fear that the neoliberal democratic party leadership is incapable of, effectively standing up to Trump. So, you know, and certainly there are some people that feel this is an opportunity to build a mass socialist movement as well. Uh, So those are, I think, the main factors, as you said. Um, But I think it's clear that this kind of terror of what Trump represents and the social forces that he represents, um, that's primarily motivating people to join DSA. Uh,
2: So, yeah.
0: Sean, there's... so there's There's Bernie and there's Trump, and people are motivated to do something and join organizations. Why is it do you think that DSA has been one of the prime beneficiaries of this new momentum on the left?
3: Yeah, so I mean I, I think that what's happened to DSA is sort of um, something that's part of a broader international trend uh, in recent years, which is the the sort of explosive growth um, of you know sort of left wing alternatives to the establishment parties uh, we've seen this in Greece and Spain lots of Latin American countries um, and I think like the main reason is just that the the neoliberal establishment of the of the left parties um, has failed to offer um, a kind of politics that really improves people's lives and gives uh, you know some expression to people's dreams um, and uh, the 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 failure of um, Hillary Clinton and the corporate um, Democrats to fend off Trump in this past election was just sort of um, you know a reflection of that broader trend. Um, and now, because of that, we're left with the most re- reactionary government in recent history. And so people have been looking to you know a left alternative that can really be something quite different from the sort of politics that they're used to getting from the neoliberal establishment. And so I think DSA was sort of opportunely placed um, because of our early and loud um, support of Bernie Sanders in the campaign, um, who sort of uh, became the voice of that tendency, which is not just um, a tendency in the United States, like I said. Um, And so, yeah, we were just at the right place at the right time with the right sort of um, vision of what politics should be, um, and uh, we've grown tremendously because of that.
1: I would also add that um, the structure of our organization is is pretty decentralized and flexible and welcoming uh, really did play a role. But I do think that uh, Bernie popularizing this concept that there is an alternative uh, really was central because I've spoken with folks in red states um, that are organizing DSA groups and they've been members of DSA for a long time. And they've, they've told me that during the Bernie campaign, they could t- tell some people that they're members of DSA, but it wasn't, it, it actually wasn't until after the election when Trump won that, you know, they felt absolutely no fear about mentioning it and it actually attracted people. So I t- completely agree with Sean that it, it's part of a broader trend, but I think it's sort of, it was, it was a moment when people realized that if we don't build something different than, you know, it really is socialism or barbarism. So it's allowed people, even in uh, those of us that live in New York, might think of as unexpected places to actually come out openly and state their politics and organize effectively.
0: And DSA is also obviously quite lucky to have that red rose emoji. Um, No other socialist group that I'm aware of has an emoji, which uh, really helps... (laughs) DSA's Twitter game and frustrates those of other groups.
1: Oh, yeah. Online organizing is key. And uh, Sean should talk about that because Sean has been organizing our social media presence for quite a while. Um, And we've really I feel like we've learned a lot in the last few years. And we've obviously gotten more people involved that also have a really strong online presence. But that has has certainly been extremely um, instrumental to our growth as well.
3: Yeah, the the rose emoji has, um, I, I was not expecting that at all. I did not come up with using the rose, emo- rose, rose emoji as, um, as like a symbol of being a DSA member on social media. Um, but it really has taken off, um, in the past few months. Um, and it, you know, it's sort of a blessing, but also a curse because then if someone has it and they misbehave on Twitter, then, it, then whatever they do gets blamed on DSA. So, you know, <laughs> <it's> sort of, <laughs> um, there's some thorns on that rose, so to speak, um, but, uh, but yeah, overall, it's, it's really great. Um, social media has been a really crucial part of um, how people have heard about DSA, how people um, keep tabs on what DSA is doing across the country, um, and I think has played a big role in, in um, DSA's growth and membership.
0: So uh, about that growth, um, how to handle it is a major challenge for the organization. In our Providence group, Sean, I believe you're the only long-term member out of the dozens of people coming to our regular meetings. And I mean, it's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem. Um, how does DSA build out the necessary capacity to deal and with and incorporate productively so many new members coming in the door?
1: <laughs> Sean, do you want to talk about it at the local level or should I start with
3: the national level? Yeah, you can start with the national because, you know, if I can figure out how to build our local properly, then, you know, that's perfect.
0: (laughs) Then socialism in our lifetime is guaranteed. (laughs) Uh, First providence, then the world.
1: (laughs) So I have to say, Sean and I have known each other for a long time, and we have, we worked together for a number of years, uh, way before the Bernie Sanders campaign, to, build DSA into a more dynamic and a multi-generational organization because there were many years when DSA was primarily folks that came um, out of SDS and other movements of that time. And Sean and I worked with another cohort of younger people to uh, build an organization that's welcoming to people of all ages and um, was returning to like really strong activist work. Um, And I think that the work that we've spent several years working on uh, really positioned us to be able to hand, handle this massive influx of people. And our last convention, which was about a year and a half ago, um, really felt like a moment when um, the organization was, um, was really a, a vibrant and um, an organization where there are a large group of talented people that felt a sense of ownership of it. And it, and it felt like we were making uh, democratic discussions really, um, work even with, within the big 10 of the ideological range of folks in the organization. And I think that that played a really important role in preparing us for the Bernie Sanders campaign. And then for the post-election rush of new members, Um, because even though we have tripled since then in size, uh, we had some of the infrastructure that was flexible enough to bring in new people. Um, and it certainly was a mess and it still is a mess. Um, but I think that we had a layer of folks at the local level and at the national level that were really invested, um, understood democratic process, um, had, had accountability to each other, had relationships between chapters and between the national and the local, um, and it really enabled us to quickly move into motion to, as I said, messily, but um, still be able to respond by uh, you know having more conference calls about organizing skills and more new member conference calls um, and providing resources for folks. We have a lot of skilled organizers in DSA, and as a lot of skilled organizers decided to join DSA in the political moment, and felt like it needed to be their political home in this tremendously dangerous moment and also exciting moment, we were able to incorporate them into the organization. So we're working on setting up infrastructure to... And we've, you know, we've been working since the election to train more folks that are new to organizing that want to build chapters. And there are over 120 local groups at this point across the country. Um, on our last chapter forming conference call, we had 50, almost 50 folks on the call. Um, and in almost every state in the country, we have folks that are working on forming local groups. And we have a system of mentors to help them organize. Um, we have a system of uh conference called like webinars about different organizing skills or doing political education webinars or sharing resources about how to organize and, and, you know, reading lists and how to run a reading group and how to run campaigns. Um, and I really think that it's because we are not extremely top down that we have this dynamism, um, that allows us to expand and we we struggle with capacity for sure. And we're still working out how exactly to restructure and prepare ourselves because we actually want to be doubling again and doubling again and become a true socialist, a mass movement, mass socialist movement. Um, but I think the work that we did before and then throughout the Sanders' campaign prepared us um, to handle this influx of new people.
0: Sean, do you want to um, offer a, a local perspective on um, the getting a drink of water out of a fire hose? Problem. <laughs>
3: um, yeah, I mean, basically Maria nailed it. I mean, a lot of the people that are joining and have become core organizers and activists at the local level are people who haven't really done a whole lot of organizing or activism before. And so, the the crucial thing I think really is you know developing organizing skills. Um, And beyond that, a lot of of people are pretty new to, like, politics in general, or especially to um, radical left politics. So developing a a sort of sense of, you know, the socialist critique of capitalism and and what we mean by socialism and, you know, the history of the socialist movement, all that kind of stuff um, is very important, I think, for really turning a new group of of people that are all very excited um, and turning that into um, a, a fighting force with some longevity.
1: Yeah. And I think um, the way that the national and the local is most connected is we're trying to apply lessons from the Sanders campaign and the distributed organizing that a cohort of Sanders folks used to really help catapult them with few resources and, and getting around the mainstream media and the part of the Democratic Party. And we're trying to apply those lessons to building DSA um, and so that we teach folks at the local level, how to do the base building, the face-to-face organizing that it takes to really dig in. And like Sean was saying, like building a fighting force of people at the grassroots. But we're, we're trying to really be nimble at the national level and help um, attract people and then drive them into the local groups that we have and empower them to, you know, look at their local context and apply organizing uh, techniques in the way that's most strategic.
0: Hey, hey, this is Dan once again. I'm chiming in to remind you to give us money. If you like the show, go to patreon.com. $5 a month or more makes you a fellow traveler, meaning you can pose questions to guests. $10 or more makes you a party member, entitling you to pose those questions and you receive a copy of Jacobin's book, The ABCs of Socialism. To donate, go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Thanks, and now back to the show. Um, following up on something you said, uh, Sean, I do want to get back to uh, the kind of political philosophy question, because uh, I don't want to bury that lead. What is democratic socialism?
3: Okay. Well, that's no small question. Let me see if I can try to do it pretty quickly. So, um, I mean, democratic socialism refers, I think basically to two things. Um, one of which is a vision, um, of, of, a kind of social order, a, a democratic social society. Um, so we, sometimes we talk about like, well, in democratic socialism, we would do things this way or that way. Rather. Um, so, um, that, that democratic socialism as a vision is not something that has ever been realized in any society. Um, so, um, democratic socialism is, is not quote unquote actually existing socialism anywhere. Um, it has, you know, there have been movements that have advanced towards it. Um, but they have all been turned away, um, or, uh, or only achieved, um, you know, partial victories. The fullness of the vision hasn't been achieved anywhere yet. And, um, and so that, that's one sense of what democratic socialism is. It's sort of like the goal that we're working towards um, in our activity. Um, and in, in another sense, um, democratic socialism is um, a social movement, and that's something that really exists um, in the world. It's quite small, um, but it's uh, actual social forces that um, you know exist in many countries around the world fighting for, labor rights, fighting against um, the kinds of exploitation and domination that especially poor people, working people, experience in their lives. Um, and those are the two the two main senses, I think, of the term democratic socialism.
0: Well, compared to other socialist groups, DSA is more big tent than hard line. Um, but there are guiding principles. And if you could dig a little deeper into what those principles are, because um, they go beyond um, merely aspiring to northern European social democracy as media outlets uh, often incorrectly report. Is that is that right?
3: Yeah, certainly. <laughs> um, yes, certainly. Uh, yes. I mean, we do want a lot of the reforms that do exist um, in a lot of those countries like Sweden, etc. Um, but uh, we understand that if you achieve those reforms under capitalism, they will always be under threat of being eroded or just repealed um, because they do challenge the ability of capitalist corporations to continue making profits, um, eventually high wages and short hours and um, you know the high taxation required for um, extensive social services like universal health care and child care and that kind of stuff. All those things do... you know make it harder for the super rich to keep making profits by, you know, exploiting working people. Um, And so eventually um, those are not long-term solutions. You will need to um, at some point actually change the way that production is organized in a society, Um, getting rid of the capitalist way that it's um, organized today, which is that, you know, certain corporations and private um, individuals, own the means of production and employ workers um, to make goods that they sell in the market for the purpose of making profits for those uh, private corporations or individuals and replace that system with a different kind of system in which um, the workers own the means of production themselves and and organize production instead um, not for making profit but instead for um, satisfying human needs, um, you know, production for use. Make things that people need because they need them, not because we're going to make money off of it. Um, so eventually, that sort of transition um, will need to happen, and that's that's what distinguishes us from um, "quote unquote" mere social democrats um, <laughs> who don't think that um, you really need to make a transition to socialism um, in the long run. Uh, now we're also we're also distinct from um, some other groups that uh, call themselves Leninists oftentimes. Um, or you know the various kinds of the Leninist tradition like uh, Maoism or Stalinism or Trotskyism um, although many of our members are um, democratic Trotskyists as well um, in that we we don't think that the revolution is going to um, be like a conflict of an armed group of rebels against the government in which they overthrow the government and then establish um, you know a new social order um, Based on that new kind of revolutionary authority, um, and uh, and we certainly don't um, want a system like that, uh, which existed under the Stalinist period in the USSR, or um, or Maoist China, or um, or anything like that, in which civil liberties are suspended and people are jailed for their beliefs, and um, you know summary execution um, is carried out, and uh, and all sorts of things like that. The, the essence of socialism is that the workers are controlling their society themselves. Um, and if a small party elite, some bureaucracy, is instead controlling everything that society does, then in no meaningful way is that workers' control, and we can't really call that kind of system socialism at all. Um, so that is certainly a very important difference um, that defines uh, what democratic socialism is for us.
1: Yeah, and I would add there are other aspects uh, that distinguish us. What I like about DSA is that people come to DSA from so many different backgrounds. I mean, we have folks that come out of a religious tradition uh, or a feminist tradition. uh, And what I really value about DSA, among many things, uh, is that we really have a a Debsian vision that's profoundly bottom-up. It's not a Vanguardist vision of how to achieve democratic socialism. We actually want a democratic movement, a majoritarian movement. Um, and we also recognize that there are insights from other movements um, that can complicate the way that we think about building that majoritarian movement and complicate the way we think about class and what it means. you know, working class women have a different experience of the world than working class men, for example. um, and we, I think, take that pretty seriously. Uh, both in a different a way that's different from liberals, but it's also different of um, Leninists, for example. So I think we we have space for everyone, and the fact that we're big tent allows us to talk about these ideas uh, and ask each other the difficult questions, um, and ultimately I think be more flexible and strategic about the organizing that we're doing, particularly in a country as large and diverse as the United States, where the context varies wildly from
3: place to place.
0: All right, and uh, I am now going to play our first ever listener question on the dig. Um, Again, to our listeners, if you'd like to ask guests questions in the future, please visit our page on Patreon and uh, support us with a donation.
2: The Sanders campaign has taught many of us both the promise and the risk of working within the Democratic Party. Um, Is does DSA plan to engage in electoral politics to run DSA candidates or to support other candidates? And if so, what's your feeling about the ballot line issue? Thank you. Bye. So I think that
1: in, it's, in some ways it's an open question. I, people in DSA have different perspectives. Um, but what is a shared belief within DSA is that we have to be strategic about elections and uh, about building power and that means being flexible and understanding that we have to build a base and there are barriers in the u.s political system which exists that we can't ignore so what that means is you know chapters will assess the situation and we can work with anti-corporate democrats and use the democratic party ballot line when it makes sense especially to run our own members as democratic socialist local candidates But we prioritize an inside outside strategy. So uh, we think of the Democratic Party as an institution that we view strategically, and uh, we work to build an independent mass base. And sometimes that will mean running candidates independently when it makes sense in the local context where that's possible. Uh, So we have a strategic long term vision, and we have uh, the flexibility, the ideological flexibility, to, to understand that practically. That can mean different things in
3: different places. I think everyone in DSA has the long term um, goal of having um, a socialist party be a major or the major party in the American political system. You know, we need to eventually take power in order to transform society from capitalism to socialism. Um, and it's on, very unclear how that could happen without um, an actual socialist party. Um, you know, in power carrying out, um, reforms. Um, well, what would like the ideal party look like? I mean, I think it would be one where the party is controlled by its members. Um, and that means excluding, um, business interests, uh, big donors, lobbyists, um, et cetera. You know, the, the class that actually runs <laughs> politics in the United States today, um, uh, it would have a platform, that is decided on democratically by those members, either directly in some way or through um, delegates sent to national conventions or, or that kind of thing. Um, parties in the United States used to do something like this, um, but not for a very long time. Um, and uh, and the elected officials for that party should be bound to that party platform in some way, so that you know they can't just like cut a backroom deal with some. Some you know somebody else and uh, and you know go against their their the principles they were elected on without consequences and that kind of thing. Um, so that's what I think like the the ideal party would look something like. Um, obviously, the Democratic Party is like the opposite of that in every way um, today. <laughs> um, but also the the barriers to third-party um, activity are extremely high today, and it's no accident the two parties have set up the system so that it's just sort of prohibitively challenging to even get ballot access um, as a third-party candidate in most races in most states. Um, so uh, I think the only real alternative now is to sort of start acting like that ideal party but not as an actual ballot-line party. Um, And so that means, um, you know, having elected officials um, run either on the Democratic Party line or a third party line or um, in many places as independent or lots of races. They don't require um, any party ID at all, um, so nonpartisan races. Um, So there's lots of options based on local circumstances. And the ballot line question, I think, is, is a kind of secondary question. The much more important thing is the substance of the politicians, um, actual politics and the relationship they have to, um, the local democratic socialist group and other, um, constituencies that, um, that we think of as being the good guys, um, and the distance that they have from the social groups that we think of as the bad guys, um, you know, business interests, uh, lobbyists, um, corporate donors, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, the, the, a practice, pragmatic approach um, that is not either, yes, always Democratic Party or no, never Democratic Party um, is, I think, the the way forward.
0: So if there are uh, differences within the organization, within DSA over this question, what would those be if there's a general strategic pragmatism, um, yet realism also about the fact that ultimately an independent socialist party will be necessary?
1: I was going to say, I think it has to do with how you interpret the local context and, um, you know, when when it's strategic to do things one way or another. So uh, I think people from different ideological perspectives in the organization would interpret a specific context in a different way, whether it would be smart to try to run an independent candidate, whether the social forces to run independently, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I just think that it, it, some people are more inclined to want to run as to run an independent candidate and other people are less inclined. And it has everything to do with, you know, how they, what they think is possible. nobody, we're, Not everybody has the same perspective about what it means to be strategic and pragmatic, right? And that's why we have democratic chapters that, that um, have democratic process to make these decisions and why we try to shape political discussions at the national level to help people um, develop their ability to, to look at all sides and
0: make that kind of decision. Can you both talk a little bit about um, what internal democracy looks like um, at DSA and how you envision different viewpoints coexisting, but also debating and, in a sense, contending for power within the organization? Um, A lot of people have recently, new members have become aware of the Left Caucus, which Sean, I know you are a member of. can you can you lay out how how um, different philosophies how that's supposed to work at DSA
3: so it's a basic fact about DSA that unlike a lot of other socialist groups we don't have a kind of sort of um, fundamental catechism that you have to fully buy into or else you're not welcome in the organization um, like you don't need to have the correct line about uh you know the classic example is the class structure of the soviet union like you don't need to decide whether it was a state capitalist country or a deformed worker state um (laughs) uh, that led to you know a shocking number of splits in (laughs) the socialist united states
0: and that's where dsa has gone wrong sean
3: (laughs) yeah maybe that's our problem (laughs)
0: we need to make up our minds on that
3: (laughs) right um yeah, so so there's there's no there's no catechism like that that you just need to you need to fully buy into um, this set of positions that are the organization's positions, and if you don't, then you're not welcome. It's much more um, uh, much more big tent um, than that. There's a it's it's designed for a much wider range of different views. Um, I mean, I think that's the way it has to be. Like socialism is about. Um, you know, workers, people, um, you know, deliberating and deciding things for themselves. And if you can't have that free debate, um, and, you know, open criticism of everything, then, uh, then everything, um, sort of becomes, you know, it just withers away into, um, dogmas. Um, and, uh, and then you lose sight of what, you know, the point was from the beginning if the ideas are not being, um, you know, always tested by questions and criticisms and whatnot, um, so so it's one of the key strengths i think of, of dsa that um that you know internal debate and criticism is um is quite welcome and essential to the process um and that's actually like the the process that the left caucus um came out of was um leading up to the last convention the the, the november 2015 dsa um national convention we had like a a year-and-a-half-long process of um, this organization-wide internal discussion um, about DSA strategy um, that was supposed to culminate in a uh, a strategy document for the organization that was like an updated form of a strategy document that DSA passed in 1995. Um, And so that was a very, very inclusive, extensive um, organization-wide discussion um, about, you know, very important questions facing DSA, like what, what is the structure of American capitalism today? Um, what are the social groups that we think are um, the ones that have the most potential to be agents of change in the future? Um, what does our vision of socialism look like? Which um, of all the you know myriad kinds of tasks that we could prioritize, which should we focus on um, strategically in the coming years? Um, and questions like that and And so, in that you know very deliberative democratic discussion, um certain people um, decided that you know in these discussions, we seem to have views that are in common with one another, so maybe we should um, form a caucus of some kind and uh, and come up with shared positions and and that kind of stuff. And so that's where the the left caucus um, came out of. Um. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's very important that DSA has the kind of culture it does um, where, you know, you can be an ideological caucus within the organization and still have a welcome home in that organization. There's plenty of other socialist groups, unfortunately, who probably would have taken less kindly to a group like us forming um, and, you know, booted us or something like that. Um, And that just doesn't happen in DSA, so... I'm very grateful of that. Um, I wouldn't want to be in, in in DSA if it didn't have that sort of open um, internal democratic culture. And yes, yeah, it's just definitely one of the, the strong suits of the organization.
1: I would even add to that and say that we've done a lot of work uh, in DSA to develop an internal culture that is welcoming to new people, and a big part of that is fostering comradely debate. And a respect for each other, even when people come from different perspectives. And I think that's a. I mean, we think about these debates as a place where um, new folks can learn, and folks that are engaged in these debates can have to interrogate their own ideas and interrogate each other's ideas, but um, in a respectful way. Because there are hard questions, frankly, on every, on both sides or all sides of many ideological questions there are um, kind of tough questions that people avoid having to answer. But if you're in a place where you can respectfully ask each other these questions, instead of using them as like a gotcha, then you can actually come up with something that's ultimately more strategic in the long run. And you can keep folks engaged and you can have people really develop their ability to articulate our politics um, much more concretely. And so that's, I think that's a big part of the internal democracy is that we foster very deliberately uh respectful debate practices uh with each other
0: and m- more specifically with regard to the left caucus what what does it believe um and envision that's maybe different from other perspectives within the organization and are there other caucuses? <laughs>
3: Well, there there have been a few other caucuses that have um, ha- that have popped up um, since we formed the Left Caucus, but it's been the only sort of enduring one um, since it was formed, which was um, in the fall of 2014. So it's been around for about um, two and a half years. Um, the Left Caucus originally came together um, because we wanted to prioritize developing. Um, a group of activists with um, with like, very good organizing skills and also very good knowledge of socialist theory, um, with a very high commitment to building the organization. Um, in like um, socialist jargon, we call that like more like a cadre model of um, of activists, um, just higher skills and and a higher commitment than um, what DSA chapters had um, really had before. Um, we wanted to strengthen DSA's, um, anti-racism, DSA's feminism, DSA's commitment to, um, queer liberation, um, and, uh, and issues like that. Um, we wanted to shift DSA's electoral strategy, um, towards, um, backing explicit socialists rather than just, you know, the most progressive candidate, um, between, um, you know, different various Democrats, um, in primaries and, and stuff like that, um, we wanted to develop a sleek and consistent graphic design for DSA, um, which, you know, at the time was not <laughs> was very far from reality. Um, I mean, I think we've actually <laughs> sort of achi- achieved, at least partially, a lot of these things in the years um, since we first um, came up with that list of points. Um, a lot of the sort of thrust of um, what the Left Caucus uh, wanted to prioritize was incorporated into the strategy document um, that was passed at the um, 2015 National Convention. Um, we, we do continue to operate today. Um, we're still talking about what exactly we want to get out of the upcoming convention in um, in August of 2017, this year. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the Left Caucus in a nutshell.
0: All right, uh, I am going to... Uh, we're going to turn to another listener question.
3: Hey, Dan, uh, this is Sam Geller. I'm um, uh, dues-paying member of DSA, and I love what they're doing this country, locally and nationally. But one thing I'm concerned about is their lack of position on boycott, divestment, sanctions of Israel. And in general, their policy about Israel and Palestine doesn't seem to be that different from the rest of the liberal elite. So my question is, um, why the silence on BDS as a tactic to put more pressure on Israel, especially at a time when um, it's BDS has been endorsed not only by Palestinian civil society, but it's gaining popularity across other leftist groups in this country, like Black Lives Matter and, and more. So if you could please
2: have some CSA account for their silence on, on that tactic, I would really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Keep up the good work.
0: To add to that uh, BDS question, I'd add more generally, what role the anti-war movement and foreign policy questions should play for, for DSA. It's remarkable that the U.S. has been at war with huge swaths of the world since 2001, and there has been little mass movement against it since the anti-Iraq war movement petered out a decade ago. So um, if you could answer that, the the BDS question and how, how DSA approaches um the Israeli occupation and, and then the broader question about what role anti-war, um, uh, politics, um, play in DSA.
3: DSA takes, a, opposing, um, imperialist war, um, quite seriously. Um, and, uh, you know, as a consequence, DSA was very against the Iraq war from the very beginning, um, opposed intervention in Libya, um, and, uh, DSA, um, has had a position on, um, Israel-Palestine that I personally have felt, um, was insufficient for a long time, although that is happily now, um, changing, um, DSA, the, the National Political Committee of DSA just last month, um, passed a statement, um, in response to, um, the, the, you know, the famous UN resolution, um, that, uh, praised um, Senator Kerry's, um, uh, you know, the parts of Senator Kerry's speech that were very critical of the Israeli government, um, and also went on to endorse, um, sort of partially endorse um, BDS, um, which is not what I would have preferred, but it was a major step forward, in that we um, DSA called for um, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, um, or um, divestment from and boycotting of the corporations that do business in the occupied territories in, um, uh, you know, the Israeli occupied territories in Palestine. Um, and so that just calling for the boycott and, and divestment of those companies, um, was a major step forward for DSA. Um, I personally would, would like to see DSA, um, you know, join the rest of the left basically and, uh, and fully endorse BDS. But, um, that's that's sort of the, the state of things today. I'm quite happy with the progress that we've made on that issue. I think it has something to do with um, the large influx of younger people in DSA who have sort of grown up in a time when um, the horrors of <laughs> the apartheid um, regime in Israel have been much more obvious um, than perhaps they were in previous generations.
0: Is is that something that could possibly be taken up um, at the convention this this summer, pushing it to... Um, a full endorsement of BDS. I mean
3: any any um mem- any delegate can um, can put forward you know a resolution you know of their own choosing. Um so yeah, it's fully within the realm of possibility that um, that that uh, that issue could come up uh, at the national convention. I don't know of any resolutions like that myself, but um, it's still many months away, and who knows?
0: Maria?
1: And I would also add that um, we sort of take a position about political statements and for that matter, resolutions at the convention, a really practical position about it, which is that we don't try to issue a statement about a lot of issues that come up that are important because we can't practically respond to everything that matters in the world. And we want to focus on the things that our members and our chapters are most actively involved in. So you know that's just a reality. At our convention, we prefer to spend the majority of our time doing political education and doing skills trainings, um, and spend enough time on passing resolutions and our leadership elections that people can really think about the issues, but not have that take up the entire weekend. For example, um, so it's it's entirely possible that that could happen, but we do try to be practical about the time that we spend, and we have, time is a very limited resource. In an organization like ours that is primarily run by volunteers and it's primarily funded by small dollar donations from members. Um, so that's, you know, that's the reality of that. Um, and then the, to the issue, the, the broader issue of being anti-imperialist and, and thinking about foreign policy and um, interventions abroad, uh, we definitely uh, think about these things, not just as moral issues, but as strategic questions and uh, really You know, we want to build a socialist movement in the belly of the beast in the United States. And um, we think that there are ways to frame issues about foreign policy that are directly tied to pocketbook pocketbook issues for people in the United States. Um, And for example, Trump deciding to spend so much money on war at the same time that he's cutting literally meals on wheels um, is a way to tie people's direct lived daily experiences to these um, adventures abroad. Um, And it's also, you know, it's tied to civil liberties and militarism at home as well as abroad. So um, the kind of fear-mongering that Trump is trying to use uh, in a right-wing populist movement to build his own power, um, we think that that's, you know, having a counter to that is the most effective way to build an anti-war movement. And as with many issues, we have to be intentional about framing it in a certain way and not... Uh, forgetting the broader issues, like we want to build um, a socialist movement that's explicitly anti-racist, the same way we want to build a um, domestic socialist movement that's explicitly anti-imperialist. And we want to frame these things, but in a way where we can bring more people into having this analysis and into thinking about these issues. Uh, So that's sort of how we think about these issues. And it is one reason that we don't try to write a statement for every horrible thing that our government does because there are just too many of them um but if we can ha- paint a holistic picture that's tied to people's everybody's everyday lives, particularly in an economic sense um we can reach more people and ultimately build a bigger movement
0: in terms of reaching those people and and building bigger movements how how should dsa think about um the broader liberal left opposition movement under Trump, how should it work with more, um, more liberal-led movements and organizations, um, and also other, other socialist groups out there? There are a
1: few things to keep in mind. One of which is that barely more than fifty percent of eligible voters voted in this election, and there are a lot of reasons. There's deliberate Republican uh, voter suppression. There's class-based voter suppression. Our entire system is set up to make it hard for poor and working class people to vote, um, general complete dissatisfaction with the options that were available. Um, so we really orient ourselves towards organizing the unorganized and bringing those folks into a movement that has a vision and is honest um, and is independent. Um, but we definitely have a relationship with you know Indivisible and, and groups like that, particularly at the grassroots level, at the chapter level. Uh, because much like DSA chapters um, are different from place to place because they're locally governed. Um, Also, these other groups vary from place to place. So like the Women's March sort of um, legacy formations that have uh, continued to exist after the inauguration, uh, some of them are extremely liberal and pretty hostile to social movements, and some of them are not. So we try to equip our local groups with the tools to be able to assess that and figure out who to work with Um, in addition to other longer term movement organizations that are rooted in communities particularly poor and working class communities particularly poor and working class communities of color um, the ones that are being most um, under siege by the trump administration Uh, we also work with other socialist organizations Um, we do try to make sure that our folks have an understanding of The modes of operating of those organizations and how our ideology is different. Um, But frankly, our our orientation is mostly towards mass organizations, organizations with millions of members or hundreds of thousands of members, um, and the unorganized, um, more so than trying to build um, a a project with the very, very, very small um, existing left in the United States. Because the left is growing, certainly, but it's still weak. It's one reason Trump was able to. Uh, win the presidency. So we are much more oriented towards um, mass organizations, but we're we're willing to work with folks at the local level, um, you know, from a wide variety of groups. And I know Sean, if you would add to this.
3: Yeah, I think that was great. I think I'll just add that um, I think because of the unique circumstances um, that we're in, in which a lot of, a lot of like left liberal um, organizations, but also just individuals um, are, feeling very um, sort of insecure about the moral and political leadership of the establishment Democrats that they're normally um, looking to for leadership. And so they're in this position where they're sort of turning to unusual places to look for advice and help um, and looking to, you know, the far left, which they never would have even considered until Trump got elected. Um, I mean, I've, I've just gotten people reaching out to me who I would not have never expected just because they're, you know, just sort of run of the mill Democrats, um, who after this election are like, Sean, uh, what should I read or what can I do? (laughs) You know, like, uh, you know, I just, this is a very strange time and, and it's, it's a real opening, I think, for the democratic socialist left, um, to not just be a supporting part of a much broader progressive movement, but also to play a much more active role in, um, in helping to shape, um, that movement. And I hope that's what DSA can do.
1: I think that um, the credibility that DSA has cultivated with uh, the kind of mass organizations in the broadly defined progressive movement has made it easier for them. Obviously, Bernie Sanders changed the conversation, but, you know, in many ways, DSA groups had built relationships where folks did know Sean and knew they could turn to him for ideas about great theorists to read. Um, And that's a really key part of the way that we think about organizing is, is building credibility through doing genuine work, being engaged democratically in broader social movements, um, not trying to poach people and really being there to play a supportive role and to learn from folks, even as we're also trying to bring our perspective openly at hiding who we are um, and having a real coalition orientation. That's uh, I think that has, Uh, help position us as well for um, working with folks that are absolutely um, because standards reach so many millions of people uh, have more open minds in this moment.
0: Hey, this is Dan. I have another request that's even more valuable than donations, but will cost you zero cash. Please tell your friends on Facebook and in real life about The Dig. It's our 16th episode And we now have between 12,000 and 15,000 downloads each week. When we started out in December, we only had about 1,000. But we think there are a lot more people out there who would like to hear the show. And the chances are that you, our current listeners, know a bunch of those people. So please spread the word and help us help you support the revitalization of informed socialist mass politics in the USA. I want to ask about diversity now. Um, DSA is by no means the exclusively white male brocialist stereotype that uh, Clinton partisans so often accused uh, the left of during the Democratic primary, but it does skew um, significantly white. Um, And in a recent statement, DSA said, Historically, the left has been, and despite the best intentions of many, continues to be, dominated by white activists, often middle class men. Organizations of the left, including DSA, generally reflect the interests, aspirations, and cultural assumptions of white working and middle class individuals more than people of color. In some ways, it's not DSA's fault and it's a, because it's a reflection of the fact that we live in a highly segregated society with too few integrated organizations and institutions, but it's still a critical question of, of how can DSA um, invite more people of color into the organization, is there a process for thinking about who's not yet in the room and how to get them there?
1: It's really key uh, to think about this question. And I think even the framing of saying that the ideolo- ideological left is, is full of primarily white organization is somewhat problematic, because obviously there are ideological organizations um, that were not primarily white, but... Um, DSA has certainly been white throughout our history and is, is, majority male, probably more than 75% male, especially after the election, because in the post-election push, the percentage of men that was joining was even higher than it, than the membership was before the election. And if that has to do with Twitter. Not sure what that's about. Um, so we're very male and we are very white, but I'm biracial and there are lots of people of color in membership and leadership. Um, and I think it's really important to us to find the right line between sort of contorting ourselves with this like guilt complex, which I, and most people in DSA find, um, not helpful at all. <laughs> in fact, quite destructive. <laughs> um, and also recognizing like, uh, what you said, uh, we have to think about the perspectives of folks that aren't in the room because when you have, I was just talking with someone earlier today about, um, building an organizing committee to start a chapter and um, comparing it to building a union organizing committee in a workplace. I used to be a union organizer. When you're building an organizing committee, you have to both make sure that you have folks from every department, but also every identity group. And uh, for example, as a woman, I would want the organizing committee to be 50% women, because you might not know that one of the bosses is sexually harassing women if you don't have any women on your organizing committee. So you really need um, to take this seriously when you think about who is represented in the leadership. And I think that's one of the key things is finding ways to organically develop the folks that our society tends to say that they are not natural leaders and that's people that are not white men, particularly middle class or upper class white men, Um, but to not do it in a tokenizing way. So we work a lot on internal practice, And also having a politics that is deeply intersectional, but is not, but that is anti-capitalist. And I think having the right touch on both of those things is important. Um, And we do, I I think also really practical thing is creating spaces for folks to have, um, you know, women, DSA women together, not necessarily talking about socialist feminism, but just being together, Right. And doing political work together or just to socializing together. Same thing with people of color, like Latino DSA members or people of color DSA members. And um, I think that's important because we are a diverse organization, we're a multiracial organization, and it varies from chapter to chapter how diverse they are. But um, we need to sort of recognize the the gender and racial composition and the class composition, which I think is often um, forgotten, but is really really critical. And different classes, people from different class backgrounds, organized in different ways, have been socialized, much like women and men are socialized in different ways. We have to be conscious about these things and be intentional about them, but not be um, obsessive about them. That's my perspective. I don't know if Sean would have anything to add to that from Providence. or We've worked a lot yeah, on I this mean, internally um, in DSA I mean, for a long time. So,
3: Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think... It's, uh, I mean, in in part, it's, um, you know, the lack of diversity in DSA, not that we're totally undiverse, which is not true, but um, the lack of diversity that does exist um, is in part due to sort of the internalized bad behavior of white straight men in DSA, um, which can be um, sort of educated out of people, I think, um, through, um, you know, deliberate education about how to Behave in ways that don't alienate people of color or women or queer folks, um, et cetera. Um, and so, that kind of training is, is extremely important to do um, in DSA. Um, we do have the further. We do have the further problem that um, our society is extremely heavily segregated um, uh, along racial lines, um, and so um, it's, it's sort of a fact of modern American life um, that. There's very little overlap in social networks across racial lines for many people. And so we do have to be very deliberate about outreach um, to groups that aren't already in the organizing committees um, because we can't just assume that, um, you know, have the meeting and they will come, um, so to speak. Um, but rather we need to be yeah, quite proactive in, in trying to diversify um, DSA's base if we're only organizing the white working class then we're not organizing the working class, um, because you know, that's not the <laughs> the way the working class is in the United States today. Um, the working class will be majority people of color in 2030. I think I heard the last statistic. Um, it's just uh, yeah, yeah, it's a reality and, uh, we have to face.
1: Yeah. People's experience of class is profoundly shaped by other aspects of their identity. And that's one reason that I'm attracted to democratic socialism and DSA in particular. Um, the other point that i forgot to mention but is you know i would say as important as internal practice and deliberate leadership development and inviting people in to leadership roles is uh rather than obsessing about just interpersonal behavior we really uh do that in addition to solidarity work and choosing the work that we do um mindfully and um you know ultimately in my opinion People learn the most through personal experiences. Um, and, you know, when they're able to read theory, they can up they can understand it. It helps them make sense of their own lives. And also um, they can make sense of theory through thinking about their own lives and their own experiences. So we think about putting people through experiences that radicalize them. And a really important experience to radicalize people is going through a struggle with someone different from themselves for a shared interest. Um, and that's why unions are you know, have been traditionally um, the most powerful racial justice organizations in the country because people don't self-segregate for work um, and they have to come together with their coworkers, even if they're very different from each other, um, to fight for shared economic interests. And that transforms people. And so we think of going through struggle together And learning to trust each other because there is no other choice um, is sort of like solidarity. uh, You build through solidarity, kind of forge this um, unity that you couldn't get in any other way, particularly like Sean was saying in, in our society that's so segregated. So we we try to train our chapters to think about ways that if they are majority white, they can be in solidarity with poor and working class organizations of color and, um, come with an open mind and be, um, respectful and thoughtful coalition partners. And over time you build trust. Uh, and that's, that's how you build the kind of movement that will be needed in this time as people have to team up with people that are different from them, um, through action. Um, and many, many people are willing to overlook, um, you know, some interpersonal behaviors and people learn to have better interpersonal behavior through uh, familiarity with each other. But people are willing to help people move beyond that if you're fighting together on the front lines. So that's the other kind of key thing is we work on our internal culture and how people work with each other. But um, ultimately it's about the fight, right? It's the struggles that we're engaged in.
0: And it seems like there are a lot of opportunities for that kind of coalition work in local struggles around immigrant rights, around uh, fighting mass incarceration, and also um, around candidate recruitment and and running political campaigns, um, uh, recruiting people from uh, who 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 have deep roots in communities um, and running campaigns in a way that mobilizes. Uh, those communities and for people to work, work together.
1: Absolutely. I mean, ultimately you have, you know, that's, that's another thing I like. I like many things about GSA um, that we're very practical about the need to base build and respect the organization that exists and um, expand the socialist movement. Um, And it is ultimately, that is the only practical way to do it is you have to uh, work with who exists. Um, You have to um, build a movement that's inclusive um, and you have to have a really practical vision. I mean, it's uh, the, the tragedy of the Bernie Sanders campaign, among many others, um, was the fact that African-Americans are the most social democratic voting bloc in the United States. And yet Bernie really struggled, particularly for older African-Americans, but to to organize that base. Um, and I think we really think of ourselves as needing to um, be really intentional about um, changing that and changing the composition of the
0: socialist movement. I have another listener question. And again, if you'd like to ask questions of future guests, check us out on Patreon and make a contribution. Um, Here is the next question.
2: Hi, this is Katrina calling from Asheville, North Carolina. A longtime listener, first time caller. Um, So North Carolina is a non-home rule state. Which means that here in Asheville, we're very much at the mercy of Raleigh, and our hands are tied locally for things like raising taxes to pay for infrastructure improvements. Um, but even though home rule would help Asheville, which is pretty far to the left generally, um, it's not exactly a socialist concept. Um, as a starting a DSA chapter here, but we're still kind of a baby chapter. Our first. General meeting is in two weeks. Um, I'm wondering how we can try to maintain momentum and build capacity as a chapter while being realistic about what we can and cannot accomplish here on a local level. And second part of my question is um, just early on with our chapter, how much energy should we be putting in the efforts to try to force change on a state level? Um, okay, that's it um yeah uh okay bye Dan
1: so Katrina raises a key question that we've been really grappling with a lot at DSA because a lot of our growth is in red states right now um which is exciting and critical and strategic for us to support um so I think the key long-term plan should be to think to really carefully power map State politics and local politics, and develop a plan to be spilled in strategic districts um, and reach out um, and really go door to door um, around really practical questions, but with tied to a socialist vision. So, right now, a lot of our groups are encouraging them to uh, do outreach to protect the Affordable Care Act, but at the same time to raise a visionary. Non-reformers reform of single payer, you know, Medicare for all, but at the same time we have to at least stop um, the rollback of the Affordable Care Act. So uh, doing a lot of outreach, but to do it in strategic places, I think, is really key. Um, and then the other thing is to build a community, a really strong community, because in in a lot of red states, um, DSA groups are a little smaller and um are in the minority and it's important to be there to support each other essentially. Um, but we really the way we frame our strategy in this moment is a three-pong struggle. So you have defensive struggles, um, whether that's you know fighting cuts to um, you know, anti-poverty programs, whether that's defending immigrants that are being deported, um, whether that's protecting the local abortion clinic. Um, And then also offensive struggles. So raising this visionary alternative um, when possible, trying to fight for, you know, a living wage and things like that. And then the third prong, which people even in uh, sort of sea of red or in small cities in a larger state, the third thing you can do is raise the ideological question and really wage ideological struggle. So trying to influence the discourse, calling into radio shows, writing letters to the editor, doing public education, Uh, public education in conjunction with base building to really reach out and bring new people into the movement around really practical questions is a long-term project, but it's one to which there are no shortcuts. Um, So to the degree that you can find, you know, local campaigns you can fight, that's important because you do need to win victories to maintain momentum. But having like a a conversation about the pace of change and um, the nature of the work that will need to happen and what kind of organization movement you want to be in to sustain you as you do that long-term work. Um I think we're all part of what you need to do and, and understand that you should always be trying to grow, but that growth is not going to come easily essentially. And And the way you want to think about it is how to be strategic and, who in the community is doing really solid work that you want to support? Um, are there things that you can leverage that they don't have that would help them pressure decision makers? Um, those are the kind of questions that you should be asking yourself.
0: Continuing on on that, the matter of 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 what local chapters are and should be up to, um, Maria, you said that getting concrete wins um, is key, and and I think that's that's pretty clearly the case. What are some of the uh, wins that DSA chapters can be focusing on at the local and state level in the near and medium term?
1: So a lot of our chapters are working on sanctuary um, and defining what that it means because it can, it's, it's kind of a buzzword that can not have many teeth. So they're working to um, set up sanctuary cities or communities or even campuses, um, but in such a way that they're actually enforceable. Um, so that's a key Key one. Um, obviously, standing up to the far right is is very important and being able to mobilize and having the relationships in advance so that you can respond rapidly when the need arises. Um, so, those are really, really practical things. Um, supporting folks that are trying to form unions um, in this moment um, in left and even progressive institution building is very, very important. Um, and a lot of our chapters, particularly in a number of states, are working on um, state-level single-payer fights. Like, we have hundreds of DSAers that have been trained by their DSA groups um, to canvas for single-payer in California, for example. A lot of our chapters in New York State are fighting for single-payer, and those aren't the only states. Um, So, you know, fighting for tangible reforms like that um, that are at the same time visionary – um, are the, the kind of things that we're supporting. And Sean, can you think of other, I mean, everything from like creating public banks to more um, investment in renewable energies, there's a lot um, increasing the minimum wage. Um, and I mean, one tangible yeah, yeah, thing that's not a reform that we're working on this spring, which we do every spring is raising money for um, state level abortion funds. Um, it's, Uh, An opportunity to do political organizing and build a base, but it's essentially direct, providing direct support by raising money so that women that can't afford an abortion or they can't afford to travel across the state and stay in a hotel overnight um, can access a safe abortion while it's still legal. (laughs)
3: So, yeah, I think I think I think that is all exactly what chapters should be looking into doing. Um the only other thing that I would add is um a great kind of offensive campaign is to run a Democratic Socialist candidate for some kind of office in either twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. Um and I guess in, in North Carolina it would have to be um the state legislature. Um we we nearly endorsed um a candidate running in North Carolina um this past year, Eric Fink, um, who unfortunately failed to qualify because of how um, grossly gerrymandered the districts were they ra- they got a whole bunch of signatures which turned out not to be in the district because it's just shaped like a dragon or something and um, <laughs> yeah so um but um but yeah running running a democratic socialist candidate um, is a great kind of um, a way to go on the offense and help shape the ideological discourse um, in a state and in the whole country. Uh, I mean, if if uh, coming out of 2018, um, there's news stories about how many uh, open Democratic Socialist uh, DSA members have been elected to various state legislatures and city councils and, and whatnot across the country, then that could be you know, something that really changes the way um, people talk about American politics and what's possible. So um, that would definitely be something to look into.
0: Um, all right. Uh, one last question from a, a very special listener.
2: Hey, Dan, Maria, and Sean, this is by website. I was just wondering if you could name two socialists living and dead that inspired you. Thanks. All right. <laughs> oh my God. The well, famous website. <laughs> what a I'm pleasure honored. to meet you. <laughs> um,
1: so um, I think that um, a living socialist that I love is Nancy Fraser. I think uh, socialist feminist, socialist feminism is very important. Um, insights on how the sex gender system interacts with capitalism uh, is critical for understanding the world that we live in and also how to build um, a sustainable movement that speaks to all people um, that we need to be part of our movement. Um, it's also important in terms of the ideological struggle against what I think of as the neoliberal distortion of the politics of the women who left the white left because of sexism among white men and the women who left the nationalist movements, um, because of sexism among men of color. And, um, they had important insights that have been, um, used against us, I would say. So I think her, her work is important. And then my, I love Antonio Gramsci. I, I feel like I continually, come back to him and he has so many lessons that um, we need to be teaching to folks that are organizing today. And as an organizer, you know, I I just think that um, this understanding um, of praxis and how to um, engage in organizing and prepare people for struggle is is really important.
0: Sean.
3: Great. Um, So I think one of my favorite um, dead socialists (laughs) is, uh, is the, the late great Karl Marx. Um, I mean, telling the story of socialism without Marx was kind of like telling Hamlet without the Prince. Um, I mean, he, he explained the particular structure of the system that dominates the modern working class with a level of insight that few have really matched since. And, um, and I, like many other socialists, draw continual inspiration by going back and reading the, you know, the, the classics. Um, one of my favorite living socialists, I think, is um, Dr. Cornell West, who has an amazing gift for speaking truth to power and, um, and really did laudable service um, for Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. And we are very proud to have um, Dr. West as an honorary chair of um, DSA, and I've had the fortune of speaking, um, the good fortune of seeing him speak um, several times at DSA national um, conferences.
0: Thank you guys both so much for your time.
3: Thank you, Dan.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Sean Monahan is a member of DSA's National Political Committee, and Maria Svart is the organization's national director. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, engineered by Tristan Rodman, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe, and also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, and so does spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even $5 a month helps a bunch. In the coming weeks, we'll be talking to Corey Robin, Nicole Ashoff, and Kianga Yamada-Taylor.